meals do you remember eating? When I ask you to think about that, even what comes to mind? I just took a short survey of my own life, and here's, here are some of the meals that came to my mind. It was a uh, mission trip to Haiti, and uh, we traveled Haiti, not that far away, but then got in the back of a pickup truck, and I stood for six or seven hours in the back of a pickup truck as we drove slowly on these terrible roads to get to this distant place in Haiti where we would spend the next week. And it was very late at night, and we hadn't eaten for 12 hours, but when we arrived at this place, the host had waiting for us pumpkin soup. And I'd never had pumpkin soup before, but I tell you, it was the best pumpkin soup I'd ever had in my life. Delicious. I remember being in Israel, the only time I'd been there, at the Sea of Galilee and eating lunch overlooking the Sea of Galilee, some fish that had been caught freshly there, served with the head and the eyes looking at me. It was delicious. I remember serving in a refugee center in Athens, Greece, and one day going to a, a little tiny restaurant on the street and having fried pork chops and enjoying that and enjoying the city. Having clay pot rice in a street in Hong Kong on Chinese New Year. Red curry in a mountain village just outside the hut in northern Thailand. And I remember the first meal that Amy ever made for me. We were dating, and she wanted to make a meal. I didn't realize it was the first one she'd ever made, but it was wonderful. Neither one of us can remember much of anything about that meal. The, the, the French silk pie she made for dessert, memorable. I realize that what you associate with a meal is often more memorable than the food itself. As we continue our study through the Gospel of Mark and this account of the life and death of Jesus, we come to the passage, that, the, the scene that's known as the Last Supper. And this is just one meal of thousands of meals Jesus ate while on this earth. Now, this, of course, is a special meal in the life of the Jewish people. This is the Passover that he observes, that Passover that happens every year on the 15th day of the month of Nisan. And Jesus and his disciples had together celebrated Passover before, but this Passover was different. And the significance of that meal that night continues to this very day, through the centuries. We celebrate it regularly as a church, as the church of Jesus does around the world. We celebrate it as communion, the Lord's table, the Eucharist. And if you don't realize the significance of, of this table, then you've not truly understood it. Why is this meal important? Well, I want to take us through the account in Mark chapter 14, beginning where we left off in verse 12. And I want to point out Five reasons why this table, the celebration of communion, must be a regular part in the life of one who follows Jesus. First, at the table, we remember God is in control. 
This is why it's important. I, I was in a grocery store one time and walking down the aisles, I, I hear it in the back, uh, uh, so an adult saying, Timmy, Timmy, come back, Timmy. And, and it continued, and, and I thought I heard something coming toward me, and as I was about to turn around, smash, I got hit with a grocery cart right in the legs. And I, and I said, ow! And I look around, and there's a, a, a young boy, mischievous grin on his face, glances at me barely as he swerves around and continues careening through the aisles of the grocery store. His mom and his dad are kind of lagging along behind. Timmy! Timmy! And I, I think it was the dad who looked at me and went, yeah, he's out of control, and kept going. It's like, no clue! Yes! He's out of control. And I think uh, sometimes we see chaotic events in our world. We experience events in our lives and we feel like God is some kind of absentee parent. Where is he? What's going on? Why isn't he stepping in? Things are out of control. And you see, communion is that regular reminder that the Lord is sovereignly in charge of this universe. That He is in control. Uh, notice this setup for the Last Supper. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, His disciples said to Him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now understand that the Passover meal began um, um, a larger, longer feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That, that, the, the Passover was the initiating part of that in Jewish culture. Now, now just to remind you or to inform some of you who might not be aware that this annual holiday marked a defining moment in the history of Israel. It was more than a thousand years, about 1,500 years before Jesus was born on this earth the Jews were slaves in Egypt. And God had promised that they would be a people forever in a land forever, and yet they were enslaved in a foreign land, and God sent Moses. After hundreds of years, God sent Moses to lead them out of slavery to the land of promise. Egyptians did not want to let them go. Pharaoh, the leader, did not want to let them go. God sent plagues upon them, terrible plagues, to, to convince them. But it wasn't until the horror of the final plague that Pharaoh relented. That last plague was the night when every home would experience the angel of death. Every home. Death would come in some form or another. You couldn't escape it just by being Jewish. The only way for death to pass over your house was to kill a lamb and paint its blood on the doorpost of the house, and then the angel of death would pass over that house. And so when the night was over, every home would either have a dead child or a dead lamb. And Exodus tells us that every home in Egypt lost someone. They wailed over the death. It was only the blood of the lamb that would allow death to pass over your house. And so every year, Israel was commanded to remember this great act of deliverance with Passover, this meal with the lamb. 
And so the disciples knew, uh, it's time for Passover. We need a place to be. We need time to prepare, uh, to eat the special food, to, to purchase the perfect lamb. And it seemed like they thought Jesus wasn't ready for this, like it was catching him unaware. But uh, he was more than ready. Verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. So Jesus has it all arranged, very prophetically. He identifies a man they'll meet. Now you've got to appreciate how difficult this would be. I mean, this is a city swarming with people. It's, it's like going to the grocery store the day before Thanksgiving. Because everybody's out preparing. Josephus, the historian, said there were about 2 million people in Jerusalem for this feast. Two million people. Jesus said, you're going to meet a man. Well, he will be carrying a jar of water. Uh, that's unusual because in that culture at that time, only the women carried water. See how far we've come? Only the women. Get, so this would be, but out of that huge city, there's going to be somebody you're going to meet, a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him. doesn't say talk. It said follow him. This stresses the predictive power of Jesus. Verse 14, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room that I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. Now, by the way, there's a custom in Israel that if on Passover you had a room available and somebody asked, said they needed a room, then you would give that room. Jesus calls it my room. And the point, what's the point here? Jesus knows what's going on. He even knows the room is upstairs. He knows it's large. This is all predictively prepared, prophetically. Now, in the hours ahead, Jesus would be betrayed, arrested, beaten, and executed. And yet Jesus is the one calling the shots. He's in charge. He knows all that's happening. As one scholar said, Jesus is not a tragic hero caught in events beyond his control. No, he's in control. He's obeying the Father's will. The conspiracy against Jesus does not come to fruition one second too soon. It's not going to happen too soon. Yes, Jesus must die. He came to this world to die. He knows that. He's not resisting the cross. He's walking straight toward the cross. But he's in charge. And it doesn't happen one second before God's plan. And so, I want you to appreciate today that this table is a reminder that God is in control. No matter how chaotic life may be, whatever stresses you may be under, uh, your sinful choices, painful mistakes, tragic circumstances, the baggage in your life, no matter what it is, the Lord reigns. And this table proves it and declares it. Second, at the table we remember to examine ourselves. Now this meal in particular involves much preparation. Much preparation. Mark leaves out the details because that's how Mark rolls. But they need a lot of preparation, including the unleavened bread and the wine and the bitter herbs and the sauce and the roast lamb. And you just don't go to, to, to the store and buy the lamb already roasted. You get the lamb and have it killed and, and skinned and then roasted for hours and prepare. This is a lot of preparation. So they do that, and at dark, Jesus and the others arrive. As verse 16 says, and they prepared the Passover. See, Mark fits that all in in a few words. 
And when it was evening, he, Jesus, came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, now I want you to realize this scene is not quite what is usually pictured. We usually picture, you know, Da Vinci's scene. And they're not positioned correctly here. First of all, the table is not, that's like a normal sized table, one we would sit at. No, clearly, that even how it's described in the Gospels, the table was low. There were, there were cushions and rugs on the floor for you to recline, for you to sit. Uh, and they don't all sit on one side of the table. Jesus didn't go in a red seat. I'd like a table for 26, please, because we're all going to sit on one side. No. Uh, but there, while they're eating, reclining, Jesus makes a shocking announcement. He said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and, and to say to him one after the other, is it I? So they all ask, am I the one? He says, one of you, am I the one? By the way, I think that is a, a far healthier question to ask than to declare what Peter does just a few verses later. Everyone else may leave you, but I never will. Yeah, everybody else might desert, but I'm not going to run. In fact, what the table calls us to do is to scrutinize our loyalties. To consider, if we truly love this one who gave himself for us, this is a time for introspection and reflection and confession. And when we eat the bread and we drink the cup, it's time for us to be profoundly conscious of our own sin, our own weakness. That we are not the ones holding ourselves together. That's God who keeps us from falling. Communion calls us to look deeply inside and ask the hard questions. And it is spiritually poisonous to avoid that. Spiritually poisonous to treat it casually. Let me say I have a problem with churches describing their worship services as casual. Now I understand the thinking behind that maybe the last 20 years or so. People, they don't want to keep people out because they're not dressed a certain way or they don't feel good. I understand that, but that's not what that communicates to me. That says we're going to come worship God and be very casual about it. And there's no such thing. Not if you understand. It's not about how you dress. It's an attitude. It can't be casual. That's why 1 Corinthians 11 says, let a person examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. There's an introspection. There's an examination that's needed. That's why the Sunday before we have communion, we put a note in the bulletin asking you to prepare for this table. That, that's what it's about. Not to take it casually. Dr. John Duncan taught uh, Hebrew at Edinburgh University. So he's a biblical scholar. and He tells how one Sunday communion was being served in his church and, and he felt so unworthy. He just was suddenly overcome with, with remorse and, and a, a sense of failure. And he felt, I can't participate in this. Which is not the biblical way, by the way. The biblical way is you confess your sin and then take. But as he's in misery he notices a young woman refusing the elements herself as they're handed to her, and then she just breaks down and sobs. And in a whisper that they could hear all across the church, Duncan said, take it, girl, it's meant for sinners. And then he took it too. Communion calls us to examine ourselves. We desperately need that. Third, at the table... 
we remember God's unconditional love. Now, Mark shows us this point when he uses a literary technique that we talked about last week called inclusio. Inclusio is about sandwiching together the story. So you have the, the main story, and then on either side of it, you have other material that's the same. It's to draw attention to this. So the description of the Last Supper is sandwiched by verses about denial and unfaithfulness. It's bracketed by these things about denial. So first, let, let me go on. Jesus answers the question, because each disciple's going, is it I, is it I, is it I? Jesus answers the who. He says this, verse 21, It is one of the twelve. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus knows who the betrayer is. He's in control. And the man is responsible for his own sin. He's betrayed the perfect son of God. Yes, that's part of God's plan from before the foundation of the world, but it's this man's choice. And what comes next is Jesus' institution of this observance of communion. The bread and the cup. Remembering his body and blood. Now, we're going to study that in a moment, but just let me show you the inclusio. So, verses 20 and 21 is betrayal. And then, verses 22 to 26, it's the Last Supper. It's the eating and drinking. And then on the other side, 27 to 31, it's the bracket of denial, betrayal. Where Jesus says in those verses, all of you are going to desert me. He didn't say most of you. All of you are going to desert me. You're all going to run away. And not only will you run away, but Peter, the rock, is going to deny him three times. And that's when Peter says, ain't going to happen. No. So these descriptions of betrayal surround the account of the Last Supper. Don't miss the point. The point is, Jesus didn't go to the cross because he failed, but because we do. That's the point. Jesus, it's not some failed plan. This is his whole point. We are failures we are sinners we desperately need a savior and his love is not because his disciples are so irresistible and nearly perfect no they're a mess just like i am they're unworthy just like i am their betrayal and their defection shows just how flawed they are and jesus goes to the cross anyway because that's why he's going Romans 5.8 tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' death is for the cowardly, for the disloyal, for the fearful, for the failing, for the sinful. And we all are. And that's why communion is so necessary, because there we remember God's unconditional love, not given to me because I'm so deserving, given to me because I'm so needy. And it should be a regular, integral part of my life, because it says, again, to me, yes, you've messed up, John. You've fallen short. You've failed to live up to God's holy standard, but he loves you still. And nothing will change that. Not even your failings. Admit them. Turn them over to him and receive forgiveness and mercy and peace. You see, nothing dragged Jesus to the cross except his love for broken sinners like me. That's what took him there. Fourth, at the table where you remember God is with us. God is with us. In Comment Magazine, Alan Jacobs, who I believe is a professor at Baylor, writes about a company that makes specific pornographic scenes for those customers who request them and are willing to pay. 
And so this, this company rents sets and hire, hires actors and films this requested scene for their customer. And Jacobs says that uh, the company received the request for this. A fully clothed actress to look into the camera and say, you are loved. Things are bad now, but they won't always be. That is heartbreaking. How lost and how lonely that person must be. And yet, who among us is a stranger to the longing to be accepted and cared for and loved and not to be alone? And that's why communion is so vital. It connects us to the one who redeemed us, who loved us to the very end. And so, verse 22, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Now, the, the Passover meal involved at least four different cups of wine throughout the night and a variety of dishes, but Jesus sets aside two of these for very special purposes. First, he took bread, and he made a memory of it. He called the bread his body. Understand, this did not change the bread physically into his body. This bread... represented his physical self which would soon be sacrificed for the sin of the world and the significant part of this is not the breaking I never say his body broken for us because that's not what the scripture says Uh, the scripture actually says the opposite yes his body he was torn to shreds uh, by, by whips and lashes and nails but not one bone was broken that's the prophecy not one bone was broken So the breaking of the bread was so that it could be distributed to the many. By his death, Jesus is given to all who believe. And with the cup, that represents his blood. Just as the blood of the lamb was painted under the doorpost, causing the angel of death to pass over that house. So those whose trust is in Christ, the blood of Jesus is causes the the wrath of God to pass over us. It was poured out on Jesus instead, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To escape the wrath of God and eternal death and separation, Jesus gave his life. And that night, he he instituted this supper, uh, giving thanks for it. The the Greek word is eucharisto, where we get our word eucharist. It means to give thanks. That's that's what happened at that table and, and should happen every time. And Jesus said the blood is poured out for many. He doesn't say all, because it's not automatic. There are no universal salvation, regardless of what you believe or who you follow. No, salvation is only in Christ alone. The sacrifice of Christ is only effective for those who have placed their trust in Jesus alone. And taking these elements does not automatically attach us to Jesus. There's no magic. It doesn't deliver extra grace to you. Salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And yet for those who believe, this table is absolutely significant and necessary for an ongoing relationship with God. To to continue that fellowship with Him. It's a time of connection and intimacy. It's a meeting ground of faith and love and, and peace and mercy. 1 Corinthians 10 calls it, a participation. Isn't this a participation in the blood and the body of Christ? That word participation means to, to, it's a koinonia, it's a communion, it's a fellowship with God through the body and blood of Christ. 
And taken in community of, with other believers, it connects us to God and with each other through the work of Jesus. That's why we need communion. It, 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 it shares with us that, that God is with us. God is with us. That's one of the reasons that we gather together. That's one of the reasons we celebrate communion together. And by the way, those who simply, and I know many in my life, who simply attend a Bible study or a Sunday school class or, or a small group and they never gather corporately with God's people, I will tell you, they might grow in knowledge, but they will not grow in spiritual health. They will not. They will not become more like Jesus. Because there's this element that we need to be together. To, to affirm again this relationship with God through the work of Jesus and the relationship we have together in Christ. This bond with a holy God and His people. It's no little thing. And this table serves to connect us. Fifth, at the table we remember a certain future with Jesus. Now two weeks ago, I had a, a little episode at the end of the second service, so you missed that. Uh, and um, I had just said something to the effect of whether I live to be 69 or 90, I want to be looking for the glorious appearing of Jesus, the Son of God. And as I was having that, that little episode, I thought, well, this might be it. I'm long short of 69, and my Uncle John did die while preaching. My great uncle, actually. So, you know, you never know. Don't leave early. But none of us knows the future, do we? None of us. None of us knows how long we have left. And we need the promise of communion. Look what it is. Verse 25, truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So there's the promise. And by the way, fruit of the vine is a term used of wine that you have at a feast. Feast day, a party. There's a party day coming. Now, for some of you, that might be a shock, and you say, I don't celebrate, I don't party, I go to church. But there's a party day coming. For those who are in Jesus, Revelation 19.9 calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb. Isaiah the prophet says, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. That's Isaiah 25.6. It's the victory celebration that's on the way. When all the redeemed people of God feast around the table, we'll all be in the same environment, and yet our capacity for joy will vary. Work on your joy capacity now if you're in Christ. Now, I've preached before how, about how to increase your capacity for joy, but that future party is coming, and it's irresistible for the people of God. It's a celebration where we literally join with Jesus, and this table is a glimpse of that. Leslie Newbigin called communion a foretaste of the reign of God. So every time we eat and drink, we're remembering this future glory, this future party, this celebration that's so certain that Jesus promised. We're looking forward to the day when we're all together in the Father's house. The day when death and tears and pain will end and as we surround the throne and we, we sing and worship our Savior King. There's a party in our future. And it's a certain one. Future with Jesus. Now for these reasons and many more, but for these five reasons today, let me tell you that communion is essential to a healthy spiritual life. I have a picture here from a couple of years ago with my oldest daughter and her husband serving communion at their church. 
this celebration. Not, not just participating in it, but with preparation and understanding and purpose. Don't let it catch you by surprise. 1 Corinthians 11 warns us that the reason some of us are weak and some of us are sick and some have died is due to our failure to appreciate this table. Do you understand how serious that warning is? So, young people, kids, don't beg for this because you're curious. And parents, don't feel pressured to be allow it, allow it to your children before you know they understand, they believe. I mean, just because your daughter at six years old wants to stay up and play video games till 3 a.m., that's not a good idea. And if you've been debating that, let me assure you, it's not a good idea. If your first grader wants to drive the car to school, you think that's not a good idea. So, parents, help guard your children. And let none of us participate only because, well, it's there. Because those around us are. No, no. Let none of us come to this table simply because it's expected. I beg you not to be casual with the bread and the cup. If you believe, focus on what this means and join in with all your heart. Because here we remember God's love to us. And we redeclare our love to Him. Say, God, you have not forgotten us, and we remember you. How much we need this table of fellowship when we're down, when we feel beaten and discouraged and burdened with loneliness or might be at the end of our rope for whatever reason. This table is where we need to be to remind ourselves all over again about what God has done. To know that God is in control. Examine our hearts. Reconnect with the Lord of all. Look ahead to our magnificent future. And each and every time we participate, it should be the highlight of our spiritual lives. My friend Lee Eckloff said this table of the Lord is, isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sinners celebrate being found. He said maybe some morning instead of solemnly passing trays, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born-again song we know. Maybe we should laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should hold our little cups high to toast lost sisters found and dead brothers alive. Yeah, communion is essential to a healthy spiritual life. I'm going to invite you to stand with me now as we bring this service to a close. And in a few moments, as the song we begin to sing, I invite you, if you desire, if you are ready, to come to one of these three tables. There's two in the front and one in the back. And to form, there are two lines at each table. There's a portion of bread and a cup on each side of the table. So you can form two lines at each table. To go there and to take off a piece of bread, break off a piece of that bread and dip it into the cup and then take in remembrance of Him. Today we offer you that privilege. And every single one of us who was once dead in sin but has been made alive in Christ needs to remember. Every single one of us knows that once I was lost but now I'm found, was blind but now I see. Every one of us who knows that is welcome in your unworthiness in your time of need, in your weakness, come. Because the one who is worthy, the one whose grace is greater than all your sin, whose strength is beyond your deepest needs and your darkest fears, calls you to remember him. Lord, receive our praise as we honor you in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.